Hey Conjurers, I'm Steph. And I'm Sham. It's a common tale we have all heard. A woman meets a handsome and charming man in a bar and sparks instantly fly. As a matter of fact, it's how my own love story with my husband started. But for at least four women in the 1990s, meeting that handsome man in a bar was the beginning of their end. He was no Prince Charming. He was a monster in disguise. In the early morning hours of September 29, 1995, a nurse was walking up to a hospital in the Van Nuys neighborhood of Los Angeles to start her workday. Suddenly, out in the dark parking lot, she saw the silhouette of a man light a match, throw it in a truck, and take off running. The truck instantly burst into wild flames, clearly doused in an accelerant to help it burn. The nurse rushed to call the fire department for help. The firemen managed to extinguish the flames, but once the fire was out, they saw charred human remains lying on the seat of the truck and knew something terrible had happened here. The matter was promptly escalated to the Los Angeles Homicide Department and the arson investigators. By the time investigators arrived, officers had already secured the crime scene to prevent any further loss of evidence and crime scene contamination. The nurse told the detectives that she had witnessed the vehicle go up in flames when she was walking into the hospital that morning to report for duty for the early morning shift. She told them that she had seen the figure of a person with long hair running away from the vehicle before the car was enveloped in fire. However, she couldn't help the detectives much more than that because it was too dark to see the person's face. She thought it was a man, but she couldn't totally be sure of that either. It was clear that the fire was not an accident and had been intentionally set either to kill the woman or to destroy her body after the murder. The offender had at least partially succeeded because while it appeared to be a female body, it was difficult to say for sure due to the severity of the burns. However, there were other items in the truck that did survive the fire, including a backpack carrying a camera, an undeveloped roll of film, and some papers that suggested that the deceased was probably 33-year-old Sandra Gallagher. Supporting this identification was the fact that the truck was registered in Sandra's name. The detectives discovered that Sandra was married to a man named Steve Gallagher and was the mother of three children. What an amateur. What was the point of trying to make her unidentifiable if you're going to leave all that evidence in her car, for God's sakes? <laughs> Murder 101, man. <laughs> he clearly didn't think his plan all the way through. Okay, so it's obvious, though, it's Sandra, right? Well, the detectives contacted her husband, Steve, who lived in the Los Angeles area, and had him brought in for questioning. So far, the detectives had every reason to believe that the victim was Sandra, but a possible identification through dental records was still a few days away. The detectives placed everything found in Sandra's truck in front of Steve and asked him to have a look. He confirmed that all of the items belonged to Sandra. The role of film was developed by the detectives, and the pictures were shown to Steve as well. He identified Sandra in the pictures. However, they didn't provide any leads. As we have seen so many times before, in a large number of cases of murdered married women, the husband is often the culprit. Investigators definitely looked at Steve as a suspect from the beginning. They asked how everything was in Steve and Sandra's marriage. Steve openly shared with detectives that he and Sandra were having some issues and had been living apart for the last few days. 
He told them that he and Sandra had met for lunch at around 2 p.m. the day before her body had been found. He said they had talked about working through their differences and getting back together. They agreed that they wanted to take it slow and do it the right way, so they planned to continue living apart for a while as they worked on their relationship. Later that evening, he got a call from Sandra from a local bar. She sounded so excited and told him that she had just won $1,200 in the lottery. That was the last time he had heard from her. The mention of the bar gave detectives a place to start. At the bar, they showed Sandra's picture to the bartender who recognized her right away. The bartender knew her and confirmed that Sandra had been at the bar on the night of September 28th. Sandra had also told everybody at the bar, whether she knew them or not, about the lottery win. When the detectives were talking to the bartender, a few customers overheard the conversation and joined in because they remembered seeing Sandra at the bar that night, too. They told detectives that Sandra kept talking with a man who had been taking special interest in her that evening. Okay, I understand her excitement. I do. But it's never a good idea to tell strangers where you're at financially. Not only does that send bad vibes your way, but it's extremely dangerous. That's how people get robbed. Absolutely. Calling her husband about her lottery win? Totally fine. But all those strangers at the bar did not need to know that. Even if she hadn't attracted the attention of a killer, vultures will latch onto anyone coming into some money. Oh yeah. So are there any more details on this very suspicious man? Well, according to this couple, the man had been buying drinks for Sandra and others all evening. They described the man as having long blonde hair and a beard. The customers also gave them a name, Glenn. They were not sure what his last name was, but they vaguely remembered it as like Rogers or something like that. At the end of the night, Glenn asked Sandra for a ride to his house. He said he lived nearby. Sandra agreed to drop Glenn off and then they left together. He had been visiting the bar every night for the past few days and so had Sandra, which was how Glenn and Sandra met in the first place. Neither she nor Glenn visited the bar again after that night. The detectives checked the records and found a Glenn Rogers living only a few minutes from the hospital where the burning truck was found. They got a warrant to search Glenn's house, but when they got to the apartment and knocked, nobody answered the door. Armed with the search warrant, they forcibly entered the apartment. From the look of the place, it seemed like he had left in a hurry. They found a woman's purse with a wallet in it, but it had no money and no ID. A single woman's earring was also found, which was a significant piece of evidence because Sandra's husband identified it as part of a pair he had bought for her only a few months earlier, which meant Sandra had probably been in Glenn's apartment at some point. Meanwhile, the coroner's report also came in. It had been confirmed that the charred remains found in the truck were indeed Sandra Gallagher, but she had not died from the flames. She was already dead when she was set on fire. The cause of death was asphyxiation from manual strangulation. I mean, to kill her by fire in that car, she would have had to either be restrained, drugged, or knocked out by force. So strangulation makes sense. Yeah, the nurse never saw anyone struggling to get out of the truck, and given her earring in his apartment, it's possible he killed her there and just drove her body to that parking lot. So, what's the detective's next moves? Well, obviously the detectives had found their prime suspect. Glenn Rogers was charged with the murder of Sandra and a warrant was issued for his arrest. Glenn's name and picture were entered into the FBI's National Crime Information Center, 
NCIC, the National Database of Crimes and Criminals, which was accessible to around 57,000 law enforcement agencies across the United States. This meant that nearly all law enforcement agencies would be made aware that Glenn Rogers was wanted for a murder in California if they entered his name in for anything even as small as a traffic ticket. The detectives were also actively looking for Glenn, pursuing all leads. They knew that he frequented bars and did odd jobs, particularly in the construction business. They went to several construction sites and came across quite a few of Glenn's friends and co-workers, who revealed a good deal about Glenn, including that he had a bad temper, especially when drunk, and had been violent with girlfriends in the past. One of Glenn's friends, who had promised to inform the detectives if he heard from him, contacted the detectives a few days later. He told them that Glenn had called him from a motel just outside of Jackson, Mississippi. The local police were contacted and immediately swarmed the motel. The manager showed them to Glenn's room, but by the time they got to it, Glenn was already gone again. A few days later, though, on November 3rd, police got a call reporting a murder in Jackson, Mississippi. The victim was a 34-year-old single mother to an 18-year-old son and a 15-year-old daughter named Linda Price. She was found dead in her bathtub by her daughter. She had multiple stab wounds to her body and her throat was slashed. No murder weapon was found and no valuables were missing. There were no signs of forced entry and the killer even locked the door before exiting the murder scene. So the detectives concluded that Linda Price had been killed for reasons other than robbery by someone she knew and had invited into her house. The detectives got in touch with Linda's mother to find out if she knew anything about her daughter's death. That is when detectives realized where Glenn had gone when he slipped through their fingers. Linda's mother told them that her daughter had found a new boyfriend and his name was Glenn Rogers. Linda had met Glenn on October 3, 1995, at the Mississippi State Fair where Glenn had been working. Linda was walking down through the fair, and Glenn took hold of her hair and said, that's the prettiest red hair I ever saw. And of course, you know, Linda just fell madly in love with him. Wait a minute. (laughs) He took a hold of her hair? (laughs) What a freaking creep. I just imagine her walking by and getting snatched up by her ponytail. (laughs) And then she fell madly in love with him because of it. What some people think is romantic is beyond me. If a man grabs me by the hair as I walk by, he's getting punched. Oh, yeah. And I need some of you to learn the difference between romantic and just plain creepy. That sounds toxic already. (laughs) Oh, yeah. But Linda trusted and loved everybody. She fell for Glenn's charm almost instantly. And the two were a couple in no time. They rented an apartment soon after and moved in together. Linda's mother described Glenn as a charismatic person who could fool anyone. He ate dinner at her home. She had no idea the man her daughter fell madly in love with would be the one to take her life. She did, however, tell the detectives that in the beginning, Linda was happier than ever before, but later started doubting the wisdom of her decision to take things with Glenn so fast. Glenn had a bad temper, and Linda was becoming scared of his mood swings. Glenn, of course, had vanished from the area, so Mississippi detectives added this murder to his warrant in California. By now, the detectives knew that Glenn had charmed his victims to death, and it didn't look like he was going to stop any time soon on his own. 
They suspected that if he wasn't captured quickly and locked up, there would likely be more victims. The detectives investigating the case got in touch with the FBI field office in Jackson, Mississippi. They believed Glenn had left the state after Linda's murder, just like he had left California after killing Sandra. The FBI came on board with the local law enforcement agencies to make a well-coordinated attempt to catch Glenn Rogers. What they didn't know was that by then, Glenn had already struck again. Only three days after killing Linda, Glenn claimed another victim on November 6th, this time in Tampa, Florida. Once again, the victim, like Linda, was found dead in a bathtub with multiple knife wounds in the back, chest, and on her wrists. The woman couldn't be immediately identified as there was nothing in the room to identify her by, but the detectives noticed a cross tattoo on her shoulder. Her jeans and shoes were found piled by the toilet and her bracelet had been tossed in the sink. From the look of the clothing and the stab wounds on the body, it was clear that the woman had been stabbed from behind, fully dressed, and the clothes had been taken off later. Detectives also found a man's watch under the body. It was clear that an attempt had been made to wipe the crime scene clean of evidence. The body had been discovered by a maid when she entered the room to clean it. The day before, she had not cleaned the room out of respect for the handwritten Do Not Disturb sign on the door. But that day, the guest was supposed to have already checked out. Later, the motel manager told detectives that the man who had rented the room had asked for a Do Not Disturb sign. But when he was told they don't have any, he got angry and stormed off to make his own using a page he had torn out of the phone book. If you're trying to be discreet, don't throw a scene around the time you committed a crime. That's like criminal 101, dude. (laughs) It sounds like we're writing a how to get away with crimes for dummies book here. (laughs) Conjures, I swear we do not condone murder or crime in any way. This guy is just too much. (laughs) Yeah, please do not murder anybody and please do not give us credit. (laughs) This guy sounds like an idiot. Oh, just wait. The motel room had been rented by a man called Glenn Rogers. The Tampa police accessed the NCIC database and realized that they might be dealing with a serial killer by that name wanted for two other murders in two different states. While the identity of the killer had been ascertained, the victim was still unknown. The authorities decided to reach out to the public for assistance. In response, a woman whose daughter had been missing came forward and identified the dead woman as her daughter, Tina Cribs, a 34-year-old mother of two. Oh, my God. Lock him up. (laughs) Who does he think he is? Ted Bundy? Like, how does he even convince these women to go with him? Well, on November 5th, 1995, Tina had gone to a bar called the Showtime Bar, where she met some friends and was planning to meet her mother, who was going to arrive a little later. Glenn happened to be at the same bar that night and was very friendly with Tina and her friends, even buying them all a round of drinks. Tina seemed taken by him instantly. After a while, he asked if she could drop him off at the motel he was staying in. He assured her that the motel was nearby and Tina could drop him off and get back before her mother even arrived. Tina agreed, but never returned. Her mother showed up and waited and sent several pager messages to her, but Tina never responded to any. That is when she reported Tina is missing. The detectives knew that Tina had driven Glenn to his motel in her car, which was a white Ford Festiva, and it was the same kind of car that the motel manager had seen Glenn loading his luggage into the day before he was scheduled to check out. 
Apparently, Glenn was driving around in Tina's Festiva. The Tampa detective investigating the case updated the NCIC database, adding the make and registration number of Tina's car to the information about Glenn. It was surprising to investigators that Glenn was not trying to hide his identity at all and was openly driving around in the car of one of his victims and had been using his real name all along. I need him to rethink how he's moving throughout his crimes. TV stations put out details of Glenn along with his picture and asked people to report if he was spotted. Hundreds of sightings were reported, one of which was a sighting at a Jackson, Mississippi motel reported by two different callers. The police immediately went to the motel and checked the room in which Glenn had been reported staying in. They found a man who looked strikingly similar to Glenn, but it was only a lookalike. They were looking in the wrong place. Glenn was actually much further south at that time. On November 10th, homicide detectives in Bossier City, Louisiana, were rushed to a murder scene. Andy Sutton, a 37-year-old mother of four, had been murdered in her apartment. Like the earlier victims of Glenn, Andy also had multiple stab wounds on her upper body and back. Andy's roommate had worked late the night she was killed and returned home early that morning. She told the detectives that when she stepped into the house, she heard Andy's door close and assumed that it must be Andy and her new boyfriend in the bedroom. She told the detectives that the name of the boyfriend Andy had met only a few days ago in a bar was Glenn Rogers. The roommate had fallen asleep on the couch and was woken up to Andy's ex-boyfriend banging on the front door. He demanded to speak with Andy, so she went to the bedroom to tell Andy he was there. That is when she discovered the blood-drenched body of Andy under the sheets. Neighbors told the detectives that they had seen Glenn leave in a white Ford Festiva. When the Louisiana detectives investigating Andy's murder ran Glenn's name through the NCIC database, they discovered that the man was wanted for three other murders and had stolen a white Ford Festiva from his previous victim. Why would you ever take the car of your victims? That's like driving around in a huge red flag. Clearly, he's not the sharpest tool in the shed. But somehow, he's still successfully killing these women in rapid succession and getting away before police can catch him. Glenn needs to be stopped immediately. Local detectives investigating the case and the FBI were not getting any concrete leads. What was even more worrisome was the fact that Glenn was killing at an alarming rate. Law enforcement agencies across the country spread the word about Glenn through the media, and FBI initiated the process for adding Glenn to its most wanted list to improve the chances of getting their hands on him. All they could do was try to predict his next move. The profilers at the FBI were aware that when people are in trouble, they generally prefer to be somewhere where they're comfortable. They dug deep into Glenn's past and his family life. Police from his hometown were more than familiar with Glenn Rogers. Sham will tell us about Glenn's early life after this short break. Glenn Edward Rogers was born on July 15th of 1962 to Edna and Claude Rogers in Hamilton, Ohio. He was the sixth of seven children and reportedly never had a chance. When he was just a baby, he would sit and rock back and forth, banging his head hard against walls and furniture, never crying. While he was still in diapers, his mother once slapped him so hard he wasn't able to breathe and passed out. It had been alleged by his siblings that she sometimes held his head underwater during his baths, 
and frequently kept him tied to the bed in arm restraints. When he learned to free himself, he would reportedly eat the paint off the walls. When he was 12, Glenn and his older brother Clay began drinking and experimenting with drugs. They robbed houses for money, and it's believed throughout their childhood they robbed nearly 200 homes. When caught, Glenn was sent to reform school, but was sent home after attempting to commit suicide by overdosing on Motrin. When he was 15 years old, he met a 13-year-old prostitute named Debbie, and the two fell in love. In 1979, when Glenn was 17, his dad suffered a life-threatening stroke that left him bedridden. Glenn often dropped by to take care of his father while his mother went out. One night, he followed his mother and caught her at a bar with another man. Glenn beat them both with a baseball bat. He then went home to put his father in the car and took him to the bar to show him what his mother had been doing. I mean, Glenn's mom doesn't sound like she's going to be awarded mother or wife of the year anytime soon, but his dad probably could have done without seeing that. Yeah, his mom sounds like a terrible human being, but like, your dad's already suffering physically, why make him suffer emotionally too? Exactly. Well, given his childhood, it's kind of textbook how to create a killer. What about the girl he fell in love with? Well, later that same year, now 15-year-old Debbie became pregnant by one of her clients. Glenn knew it wasn't his son, but when the baby was born, they named him Glenn, and Glenn adopted him and gave him the Rogers name. The next year, Glenn and Debbie were married and had a second son named Jonathan. Their little family didn't live in bliss long, however. Glenn became convinced that Debbie was cheating on him and followed her. He watched as she picked up a John, and Glenn flew into a jealous rage. He beat her violently, kicking her in the vagina several times with his steel-toed boots. He wanted to be sure that no one else could have her. Debbie recovered with the help of corrective surgery, but mentally, she never got over it. Jesus. Yeah. And in 1985, Glenn moved to Los Angeles, California with a new girlfriend, but still went to Kentucky to visit his brother Clay often. The two are well known throughout Ohio and Kentucky for their many cons and bad behavior. Glenn wasn't known to make smart choices. He once went to the emergency room high on cocaine after injecting Budweiser directly into his veins. (laughs) And Budweiser out of all beers. Like, you couldn't get a high-class beer. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Anyways, in 1989, Glenn was dating a woman by the name of Joyce Arthur when he and Clay sexually assaulted her after a night of drinking. After the attack, Glenn then stole her money and left town. He joined a traveling circus and met a girl in every town he came to. That's how he met Linda Price. During the years he was traveling with the circus before his murder spree officially began, he was suspected of several other attacks. Glenn confessed to a bartender in January of 1991 that he injected whiskey into the IV of a man named Thomas Allen Wolsifer, who had recently died at a nursing home nearby, but the police never investigated the death. A 30-year-old prostitute named Carrie Gaskins was murdered on January 28th of 1992 and may have had a connection to Glenn, according to her daughter, but it was never confirmed. In 1993, Glenn supposedly raped and murdered a prostitute by the name of Mary, but that was never confirmed either. In late January of 1994, one of Glenn's brothers called the Kentucky Police Department to report the discovery of a body in a cabin in the woods owned by the Rogers family. The cabin was not used very often, which explains why the remains were able to lay there undiscovered for so long. By the time it was found, nothing but a skeleton remained. 
The police believe that the remains were 71-year-old Mark Peters. Mark had been missing for several months after last being seen by his roommate, Glenn Rogers. The hands of the corpse were tied behind his back with a cord that matched the type of cord found in the home he shared with Glenn. Due to the advanced decomposition of the body, the cause of death could not be determined. Except for a suspicion about Glenn, who by then had moved to California, the police didn't have any suspects to question or leads to pursue. The case remained open for years, but had gone cold until the detectives investigating multiple murders in several states contacted the Kentucky Police Department inquiring about Glenn. So he potentially killed even more people. The Kentucky police didn't seem to try very hard to find him regarding Mark's murder. Yeah, I don't necessarily understand the holdup either. They eventually got this guy, right? On November 13th of 1995, Glenn Rogers paid a visit to his aunt in Kentucky, who kept her cool until he left, then immediately called the police. She told the police that Glenn was driving towards Interstate 75 in a small white car. The police immediately rushed to the road they knew Glenn would take to reach Interstate 75 and waited for him to cross at a suitable spot. Soon, a white Ford Festiva drove past. The detective waiting in the car started following and drove up by the side of the car to have a look at the driver. The driver was indeed Glenn. The detective fell back and called for backup. A police car stationed nearby joined the slow pursuit. Meanwhile, a few miles ahead, the police created a roadblock. Glenn realized that he was being followed and sped the car up and somehow dodged the roadblock. The slow pursuit turned into a hot pursuit. They fired at his tires, but it didn't stop him. An officer caught up to him and tapped his car with a police car. He spun off the road and was taken into custody. In the car, the police found bloodstained shorts, a blanket, and the purse of a woman, among other things. The items found in the car linked Glenn to the murders in Mississippi, Florida, and Louisiana. The investigators from all five states, Mississippi, Florida, California, Louisiana, and Kentucky, met in person and pieced together all the evidence and shared whatever information they had with each other. The evidence was pulled together and processed by the FBI's forensic labs to seal the case against them. Nice. I love that all the evidence they needed was just sitting in the victim's car he was driving. Made it super easy for them. Well, he practically handed them everything they needed. (laughs) Agency cooperation between several states like that usually doesn't happen like that. Where did they decide to charge him first? Did they play rock, paper, scissors or something? (laughs) After going through all the evidence thoroughly, the investigators decided that their best case against Glenn was the Florida crime. Physical evidence against Glenn in the case of the Florida victim, Tina Marie Cribbs, was overwhelming. There was Tina's car, which Glenn had been arrested from. There were Glenn's shorts with Tina's DNA on them. Then there was the registration slip Glenn had signed in his own handwriting at the motel where Tina's body was found, and his fingerprints had been lifted from inside the motel room. Then there was the watch found in the tub under her body. Detectives were able to prove it was his. It was shown in one of the pictures of him with the victim, Linda Price. They knew they could put him away for life on that Florida case, but the other state's cases weren't as solid, evidence-wise. On May 7th of 1997, after eight hours of deliberation, a Tampa jury found Glenn guilty of murder in the first degree. And the next day, on May 8th of 1997, the same jury took three hours to recommend the death sentence, which was confirmed on May 11th of 1997. Two years later, in 1997, Glenn faced another murder trial in Los Angeles, California, for the murder of Sandra Gallagher. 
The prosecutors told the jury that on September 28th of 1995, Sandra and Glenn left a bar and drove away together in Sandra's truck. A little later, there was a physical struggle between the two, perhaps due to an unwanted sexual advance by Glenn. Glenn strangled Sandra to death and set the truck on fire to destroy the evidence. The Los Angeles jury also found Glenn guilty of first-degree murder and arson, and he was awarded another death penalty on July 16, 1999. He told family members and friends before he was caught that he had killed dozens of women. There may be more that haven't been linked to him yet. Two death penalties is good enough for me. He's off the streets forever. I mean, one death penalty is enough, but two is like, yeah, sir, we really don't want you here. (laughs) (laughs) I do wish we could link him to all the other people he might have killed, though. Who knows if innocent people were accused or even convicted of crimes Glenn actually committed? Well, here's a wild theory. In 2012, the Discovery Channel aired a documentary titled My Brother the Serial Killer, in which Glenn's brother Clay claims Glenn confessed to him that he killed O.J. Simpson's wife, Nicole Brown Simpson, and Ronald Goldman in the sensational dual murder back in 1994. I'm sure you all know about this case, where O.J. Simpson was charged but was later acquitted. Clay claimed that Glenn confessed to him he had been hired by O.J. Simpson to break into Nicole's condo and steal a pair of earrings. There's almost nothing in common between how Nicole and Ronald were killed and Glenn's other victims, But given the questions raised in recent times by the independent investigators working on the case, there was evidence ignored by the investigators during the original police investigation. Clay's claims can't be dismissed outright. In fact, it's been proven that Glenn used the idea of his previous victim, Mark's son, James Peters, when he first moved to California and was hired to do odd jobs around Nicole's house under that name. Wow, that's crazy. At first, I was like, yeah, right. But if he was actually in her house at some point... I mean, I'll forever believe OJ did it, but maybe it wasn't by his own hands. Nicole wasn't really Glenn's typical target. We'll likely never know. So was he executed then? Glenn Rogers, now 56, has been on death row since he was 34. According to the Death Penalty Information Center, the average time spent on death row in 2013 was 15 and a half years. His many appeals have all been denied. Glenn Rogers remains on the Florida and California death row with no date scheduled for execution yet. Glenn lured women to their deaths for no apparent reason other than his own twisted amusement. We know of at least five innocent lives taken by this cold-hearted psychopath, but there are likely many more that we don't know about. He was only caught because his family members did the right thing when he contacted them and reported it to police. He will remain behind bars until his death, which is exactly where a monster like Glenn Rogers belongs. Just like this case, most crimes need the community's help to solve. For that, there's Crime Stoppers. Crime Stoppers is entirely anonymous, and the process of calling Crime Stoppers is simple. If you have knowledge of a crime, call 1-877-903-STOP which puts you in contact with the Crime Stoppers Command Center. An operator will answer the phone and take down the information you wish to provide. They'll never ask for your name, number, address, or any other identifying information. You can also place a tip on the website from the Tip Submit button on the main page, or you can download the P3 Tips app. To view images, information, and sources from this case, visit our website at crimeandconjure.com. Research and writing for this episode was done by Stefan Shamp. Editing of this episode by Denver Fortner Productions with music by Jordan Alina. 
be sure to check out our Instagram at Crime and Conjure Podcast for our question of the week. Steph, what's our Conjure Tip of the Week? Today we have a really simple and fun way you can bring magic into your day anywhere at any time. Simply focus on your intention and stir your drink, food, or special mixture clockwise to bring things that you want into your life. Things like productivity, happiness, positivity, creativity, and so on. Stir counterclockwise to banish things like anxiety, negativity, fear, or unwanted attention. Oh wow, you can literally do that anytime. If you're listening to this at work right now and that one coworker you can't stand is getting on your nerves, stir that coffee counterclockwise. <laughs> <laughs> we'll be back next week with another episode. Until, Until next time, time stay, stay vigilant, vigilant conjurers. conjurers.